Hello, I'm Earl Fontanelle, and you are listening to The Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast, online at goodoldschwepp.net. Episode 90, The Orthodox Gnostic, Introducing Clement of Alexandria. We've talked a bit about Christianity in this podcast so far. The new, rather shocking movement gathering steam in the Roman world of the 2nd century CE, and, in retrospect, fixing to take over the world, but only in retrospect, we hasten to add. No one except the Christians themselves, who were a pretty small minority in the 2nd century, really thought that their religion was particularly significant. We've looked at three early heretics, Basilides, Valentinus, and Marcion, important Christian teachers whose thought eventually ended up on the cutting room floor, though I hope we've made the point that in the second century, the idea that the Christianity, which would eventually become orthodoxy, was going to become a kind of universal ideology in the Roman Empire would have seemed like absolute lunacy to anyone, except maybe a Christian fanatic. And remember, the doctrine of the Trinity as we know it, one of the hallmarks of orthodoxy, or of Catholic belief, hadn't even been formulated yet by anyone that we know of. So things are in a state of extreme flux within Christianity, and all kinds of ideas are flying around this strange cult. Now, one of the most fascinating figures of the early 2nd century Christian movement, and as we've mentioned before, it really only makes sense to talk about a Christian as opposed to a Jewish movement from about the 2nd century onwards, one of the most fascinating figures of this movement is Clement of Alexandria. Titus Flavius Clemens, to give his full Roman name, was born sometime around the year 150 CE and died near the year 215. We think he was born in Athens, but he may have been born in Alexandria. We only have a bit of testimony that says Athens. It's certain anyway that he was active in Alexandria for his working lifetime, though he fled the city during the persecution of Christians under Septimius Severus in the year 202, and returned later when things cooled off again. Most, if not all, of his writings seems to have been done in the earlier period. He was thus a very prolific, young-ish Christian philosopher. Clement tells us that he wandered the Eastern Roman Oikumene in search of a teacher, and finally found the man he was looking for in a certain Alexandrian named Pantinos, a fairly mysterious teacher who may have been a Stoic who converted to Christianity. Pantinus was a real person, it is agreed, but we should be aware that the whole kind of wandering the world seeking wisdom trope is precisely that. A philosophical cliche, which we've already seen applied in this podcast to figures like Pythagoras and Plato. So Clement is, on the one hand, slotting himself into that tradition, and perhaps making the point that it is with Christianity that the true philosophical quest finds its fitting terminus, but it is also clear that Clement really did pick up a lot of philosophy on his early educational period before he became a Christian. And Clement, as an intellectual whose interests come to encompass a full history of Greek philosophy and a strong belief in Christianity, makes this point very forcefully, and other Christian thinkers will pick up on it later. Christianity is not the rejection of philosophy, it is the true philosophy. And Christians can take what is good from earlier philosophers, since they also had some access to divine inspiration through the Logos. This latter idea 
is a little bit more generous than later thinkers like Augustine were willing to be to the philosophers. Now we'll come back to the Logos and how it teaches people things. But um, for now, let's carry on with the minimal biography we have of Clement. We know that Clement was a teacher in Alexandria, but what form that teaching took is debated, and we shall discuss this question shortly. Aside from this, we don't really know much about Clement and his life. What we do know comes from two main sources. Clement's own writings, particularly the Stromates, which we shall be devoting a lot of attention to on the podcast, and which contains loads of little biographical snippets here and there, and the ecclesiastical history of Eusebius, our early 4th century orthodox propagandist and one of the most important forgers of the Christian historical mythos. We also have a few contemporary references to Clement by name, which basically just let us know that he was a major Christian intellectual whose work was being read during his lifetime. So that's how we know what we know. We also know that Clement was a hugely important figure in the early church. As far as we can tell, his teaching activity and his writings were considered legit by the powers that were in the Alexandrian church and beyond. And he figures in these early martyrologies in the Western church, So he was assigned the date, December 4th, in case anyone wants to revive the Feast of the Blessed Clement. Now, we haven't mentioned any martyrdom of Clement, and that's because we don't actually have any evidence for any martyrdom, but he was certainly regarded by later Christians as a martyr for the faith. And this went on until the 16th century. The then Pope, a man who was ironically named Clement VIII, took the step of cutting Clement, our Clement of Alexandria, from the role of the pious dead who have their own holidays. So why did this happen? We don't actually know, but we can presume that, as in the early modern period, the Latinate Vatican began to be full of Greek scholars who could read original untranslated works, like the highly heretical esoteric works of Clement, they said, oh no, 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 this will not do, and had him cut from the calendar or perhaps advise the Pope to cut him. Or to put it another way, the absolutely bonkers middle Platonist worldview in which human beings endlessly ascend toward God, reborn into higher and higher angelic forms successively, where God is an ineffable unity, not a trinity, giving rise to a logos who, while being Christ, is much, much bigger than Christ and seems to be subordinated to the Father, which was highly heretical in later times, where the elite of Christianity are known, not as the saints, not even as the believers, but as the Gnostics, and so on. This is the other Clement, as he has been called. The Clement we are very, very interested in here at the Schwepp. This other Clement is perhaps the single most esoteric author from antiquity (laughs) across the board. We really mean this, and we can even prove it, which we shall do in the next episode, discussing Clement's esoteric methodologies in the Stromates and other esoteric works. The Stromates is one of those treasures of esoteric history, a text which announces repeatedly that it is written in a certain way on purpose to hide its deeper doctrines from the casual reader. It both hides and reveals its truths through an incredible deployment of arithmological interpretation, so any number in scripture can and does have immense metaphysical significance, an erudite reading of Hellenic philosophy alongside and sort of intertwined with scriptural exegesis, 
Yes, he was a reader of Philo, in case you were wondering, and we'll discuss more on that in due course. A widespread use of the rhetorics of initiation, and a logos theology, an angelology, and a theory of revelation which put revelation and esotericism in a sort of perpetual state of union. Revelation from the Logos, of course, is available to all mankind, but only the Christian Gnostic can attain to its deepest truths, which also involves transforming into a god. Wait a minute. Gnostics? Yes, gentle listener, Gnostics. This is the second point of great interest to us about Clement. Clement sets himself against some of the thinkers whom scholars want to call Gnostics on various points. Valentinus, in particular, is attacked by Clement in the Stromates on certain doctrinal matters. Clement, like everyone else in his era who's a Christian, sees himself as a true Christian, for want of a better term. And uh, while in this period there's nothing like a Nicene Creed, a standard rubber stamp way of defining what a true Christian is, Clement is definitely on the side of the church of the bishops, even the church of the regular Christian believer as he sees it. He's certainly read that way by Eusebius anyway, and as Eusebius will become a semi-official kind of account of the early church, being accepted by Eusebius as orthodox pretty much meant that you were orthodox in later centuries, whatever your actual teaching had been. Just as being denounced by Eusebius as heretical, as we saw in our earlier episodes on the second century heresiarchs, was a surefire death sentence as far as orthodoxy was concerned. Now Clement is, let's say, firmly proto-orthodox in his self-presentation, if that makes any sense. But Clement tells us that among the true Christians, there are at least two degrees of initiation. Deploying the terms of initiation familiar from the Greek mysteries, see episode 13 of the podcast. All the time in reference to Christian belief and salvation. The two grades of Christian are typified by pistis, the faith of the Christian believer, and a deeper understanding or knowledge, gnosis, which is the mark of the elect, esoteric core of Christian philosophers, also called the initiates of the true mysteries, also called the ones who have attained, not merely to salvation, but to angelomorphic transformation, and yes, to godhood. Clement, like many a good monotheist of his era, has no problem talking about gods alongside God, and he thinks that the Gnostics have the ability to become gods. In fact, if we want to define a Gnostic as someone for whom Gnosis has a salvific effect, determining the fate of the Gnostic in this life and in the hereafter, then it's fair to say I think that Clement is the single most Gnostic thinker in the history of Gnosticism. Only he was an anti-Gnostic polemicist, and was concerned with defending what he saw as true Christianity, in some cases, from the doctrinal errors of, well, the Gnostics. Oh, and in certain of his works, he seems to support many, many positions wholeheartedly, which we can say are typical Valentinian positions. Or at least, it's impossible to say what positions he supports and what are Valentinian's positions he's reported and so on. It gets complicated. In light of the important caveats, which need to be applied when we use the term Gnostic, see episode 80 of the podcast, we shall need to revisit all of this with further analysis. And for now, we just wanted to point it out to whet your appetite for more Clement. Now, let's talk a bit about Clement's teaching activity in Alexandria, and then about what he wrote. Eusebius tells us there was a catechetical school at Alexandria. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. This was a place where you went if, say, 
You were a newly converted Christian and wanted to get a handle on all the subtleties and doctrinal beliefs of your new religion. You went to the catechetical school and they give you your catechism. Eusebius paints a picture of an unbroken teaching lineage at this school. Pantinus, Clement, Oregon. All important names to conjure with here in the history of Western esotericism. Modern scholars, starting with Bardi, in several articles from the 1930s onwards, have questioned whether such a school even existed as such, and what form this teaching lineage might have really taken. It's a very mooted, open question today. Some, some scholars deny there was any such thing as a catechetical school of Alexandria. What is at any rate certain is that Clement was a teacher of some kind, and folks have modeled the form that this teaching took in a number of different ways. I myself tend to lean toward the model posed by scholars like Notin. Clement's teaching took place in a kind of salon environment or informal intellectual circle made up of regular Christians, maybe ones with a more philosophical bent or more philosophical education, who are interested in deeper matters, things like metaphysics and cosmology. Like the schools of the Valentinians probably were in many cases, Clement's teaching, according to this interpretation, was a kind of study circle more than anything else. However, the skeptics are right in pointing out that we really don't have any solid evidence for the so-called school beyond Eusebius. Now, an important point for students of esotericism is that Clement thinks there is a concrete esoteric content in Christianity which is passed on by the presbyteroi, the elders, through oral teaching from master to student. So who are these elders? According to many scholars, they were Jewish Christian teachers of an earlier generation that Clement knew and had learned from, and they had a detailed extra-scriptural teaching on such matters as metaphysics, cosmology, angelology very significantly. This teaching was passed on orally. They may indeed have been part of the Hellenized wing of Alexandrian Judaism, of which Philo is now the best-known exemplar, but ones who had in some way gone Christian. The Jewish-Christian nature of the elders, which is hypothetical, is the simplest way to explain all the recognizable elements of apocalyptic Second Temple Judaism that we find in Clement's thought. Although I don't think we should underestimate the melting pot nature of Alexandria in the second century, you don't necessarily need Jews to absorb Jewish teachings and ideas in second century Alexandria. Whoever they were, Clement considers the elders to be authorities of the highest water, and he gives us some of their teachings, which involve, among other things, the angelomorphic transformations we discussed, and various, in retrospect, heterodox doctrines, which we shall be discussing in the course of this episode and coming episodes. That is the primary esoteric wisdom lineage that Clement tells us about, or perhaps constructs, depending on how you want to take it. Now let's turn briefly to his writings, and we'll see that he gives us reason to think that he himself is part of this esoteric teaching lineage. Clement's surviving works are among the most fascinating works of early Christianity. I would go so far as to say of Christianity, full stop, but I am biased. There are a couple of problematical surviving pieces which no one is quite sure how to fit into the Clementine corpus, which are a doozy, and they teach some incredible esoteric stuff. But even what they call the mainstream trinity of works that make up the Clementine corpus that people are most familiar with are a doozy on their own. Clement actually wrote many surviving works, including like short little instructional texts 
on whether a rich man might be saved and subjects like that. But there are three which stand out as proper finished pieces and which have certainly attracted the most scholarly attention, sometimes being referred to as Clement's Trilogy. These are the Protreptikos, or Exhortation to the Hellenes, the Paedagogos, or The Teacher, and the Stromates, or The Patchworks. The first two titles are standard titles. A Protreptikos Bilos in philosophy was a book intended to encourage the reader to take up philosophy. In Clement's case, he's exhorting the reader to become a Christian. So he's talking to an educated Hellene, saying, Christianity is the way forward, come join us. Paedagogos is literally a leader of children, basically a school teacher. Now this work is an instruction in the basic tenets of Christianity, as Clement sees them. Both of these works were enthusiastically taken up by contemporary and later Christians as useful documents for getting folks into the church and then straightening them out on the basics once they were there. Naturally, we aren't all too interested in these books here at the Schwepp, but we must keep in mind that he wrote them, and you can't get an idea of Clement as a thinker by ignoring these exoteric works, these works for the masses. Clement's esotericism exists within the framework of this doctrinal Christian system. You need pistis before you move on to gnosis, that is, you need faith before you move on to the higher knowledge. With the stromates, however, things get much more interesting and indeed Gnostic. It has been theorized that the three works, the Protreptic, the Instructor, and the Patchworks, are all meant to map onto three levels of teaching, which Clement thinks are given to humanity by the Divine Logos. In other words, there's a progression from conversion and acceptance of the truth through to an understanding of the truth in a basic way, and then to the deeper teaching, the didaskalia, the, uh, the gnosis, the, the, the more esoteric matters. Now, we know that Clement did theorize such a threefold procedure of teaching, and that he did think the Logos did the teaching, so Christ himself in his sort of universal form was constantly teaching humanity in these three modes. And the first two books, the Protrepticos and the Padagogos, fit the first two modes perfectly. So the question is, is the Stromates the third installment, the exposition of the Gnosis, the Didaskalos, which we would expect to find in this trilogy. What cannot be debated is that the Stromates does indeed deal with what Clement regards as deeper matters of Christianity, the deeper doctrines, those taught orally to a select audience by the elders. And it does so in a way which is intentionally scattered, so that to figure out what the teachings are, you need to read the hell out of the Stromates. Clement uses an intentional randomness in the presentation. Hence the name Patchworks. Oregon would also write a stromatase later on, but that is sadly lost to us. Now, as we've said, the esoteric practice of writing used in the stromatase of Clement is truly extraordinary and demands a whole episode to itself, as does the exposition of the esoteric doctrines taught therein. Yes, gentle listener, we shall be revealing the secret doctrines. Though, luckily, as with most of the thinkers, the podcast will be covering from now into late antiquity, Clement has a highly apophatic theology, so that for him, the nature of God is a self-hiding secret, which we couldn't reveal even if he wanted to. But we will nevertheless be talking about some rather more dangerous and spicy esoteric ideas found in the Stromates. 
Now, the picture we have painted here of a basic trilogy, with the Stromates being the esoteric work, is really not the whole story of Clement. And when we were writing this episode, we originally had about 20 minutes of podcast devoted to the tangled web of mysterious works like the Excerpta e Theodoto, the Eclogai Propheticae, as well as the lost work of biblical exegesis called the Hypotyposes, or outlines, which survives in fragments and in a partial Latin translation, not to mention even more problematic works like the Mar Saba letter, which may just be a modern forgery or may be one of the most important discoveries in biblical studies in the 20th century, and the pseudo-Clementine literature of antiquity. Uh, anyway, we realize that this material doesn't really fit in a basic introductory episode, and we have shunted it over to a special episode where proper textual nerds can listen to the story of the Clementine, Pseudo-Clementine, and possibly Pseudo-Clementine corpus, and get a picture of how it all fits together. In this episode, let's move on to discuss Clement's fascinating thought world in a very introductory way. In doing so, it must be said we shall be eliding some very difficult textual questions and making some connections across texts which not all readers of Clement will find legitimate. There's no avoiding this, and we will try to be conservative, although we will not take the stance often taken by scholars of Clement, which is completely to avoid his esoterics materials and pretend he's essentially just a recognizably orthodox Christian. That would never do. It's historically dishonest, and we won't be going there. Now, as we said before, whatever was involved exactly in Clement's period of wandering in search for the right teacher in his youth, it definitely included instruction in Hellenistic philosophy very widely, in Greek poetry and quite a bit of recondite Hellenic lore, which nowadays we would probably call sort of occult ideas. We can generalize most broadly and call Clement a middle Platonizing Christian. He's read Plato, quotes Plato all the time, and whomever else he might have read from the later Platonist tradition, he most definitely read Philo. Loads of work has been done showing that um, Clement is intimately familiar with Philo. And he draws on him a lot for his exegetical method, most importantly, of course, but also seeking, you know, seeking out deeper esoteric philosophic wisdom in the works of scripture. And like Philo considering Moses to be the Ur-Philosoph, but he is also quite Philonic in his adoption of a very strong strand of Stoic ethics within the Middle Platonist metaphysical framework. Now, this framework has a highest ineffable God, God the Father of the Old and New Testaments, and a secondary God, the Logos. So far, so Philonic. Now, Clement's Logos became manifest in the person of Jesus Christ at a certain point in history, at which point we are in Christian territory, but it's nevertheless striking the degree to which Clement's worldview is a familiar pattern of ineffable first principle, which emanates a logos, which then does the work of creation, and so forth. There are two main realms of reality, the geocentric material cosmos where we live, and the noetic realm, which of course pre-exists the cosmos, and which is the world, the logos. But there are some really interesting touches here, which are very Clementine. First of all, we have some evidence that Clement sees matter as an eternal pre-existent principle. God doesn't create matter, but like Plato's Demiurge, 
uh, in the case of the receptacle in the Timaeus, he finds matter sitting there and uses it to create images of the eternal noetic realities and thus creates the world. God also does not create the world in time for Clement. The world is eternal. The creation is eternal. So Clement's idea of the creation is one which is much more acceptable to a literate Platonistic audience, much less acceptable to the orthodox reading of Genesis, where there was at a particular moment a beginning to time. Another interesting point is that Clement argues for bodily existence all the way up the chain of being. So angels have bodies. Even the highest god has a body of some ineffable kind. This is emphatically not a Middle Platonist conceit, but must come from his reading of scriptures, and maybe as well perhaps from the Second Temple Jewish ideas about the body of God, such as are found in the delightful Shior Kuma texts, which attach great significance to the measurements of God's enormous limbs and things like that. Now, Clement's ethics uh, are also an interesting take on an old classic, and I think very Clementine. He touts apatheia, which is not exactly apathy, it's the stoic state of wisdom par excellence, in fact. And this, for him, is the highest virtue, and indeed, salvation itself. We don't have time to get into this fascinating take on stoic ethics here, sadly, but it is worth noting that the Christian is not saved by being a Christian, for Clement. The Christian is saved by attaining to a state separated from the body, separated from vices, and finally possessed of gnosis of the truth. A state where he's invulnerable. Nothing can hurt the true Christian because he knows what's up. This is Stoic ethics read onto, I think, cheerful first and second century Christian martyrs who went to their deaths singing hymns. If these people weren't saved, who was saved? They have apatheia. They are essentially indestructible. You can kill their body, but who cares? Now, this combination of father and logos has been called binitarian Christianity, in contrast to the Trinitarian doctrine, which develops over the next hundred years or so. Clement does talk about the third person of the later Trinity, the Holy Spirit, but not in a way which indicates he sees it as an independent hypostasis or divine reality. Most often, he equates it either with the Christ Logos, just saying the Logos is a pneuma, is a spirit, or with the protoctists, whom we shall be discussing in just a moment. So the, the protoctists often take the role of the, the pneuma in later Christian thought. So he is unorthodox here, but then so was most of second century Christianity, since no one had yet really formulated Trinitarianism. He also will come under fire from later thinkers for what they consider to be his subordinationist vision of the Logos. In other words, Clement's Platonist metaphysics clearly place God at the pinnacle of existence. You can't have two first principles in a middle Platonist cosmology. As we've seen, even with the Neopythagoreans, the one and the dyad are always either subordinated to a higher one or simply arranged as one on top, dyad coming after it in a form of emanation. We never find a one dyad pair as the originating principle of reality, although such pairings were posited in genuine early Pythagoreanism. So, as we shall see when we discuss Origen, the next great esoteric Christian thinker to whom Alexandria gave rise, 
This perceived subordinationism, this idea that Clement had not made the Logos Christ absolutely equal and the same as God the Father, but somehow as a lesser emanation, became a problem during the Arian controversy of the 4th century, when the Orthodox vied with the Arians, who taught that Christ was subordinate to God the Father, in an empire-wide struggle for totalitarian control of the truth, which shaped the course of Western thought forever after. Both Clement and Origen became very dangerous thinkers in this period, because they could be used by both sides, and they could be used by the Arians as proof that great early Christian intellectuals had in fact supported their position. Now, the Christian Gnostic in Clement, like the Platonist philosopher, needs to leave behind the world of matter and come to dwell in the noetic realm. As in Philo, man is made in God's image, in that man is rational, has noose, and so on. However, the details of Philo's and Clement's theory are very different, despite their agreeing on the inner meaning of the story of human creation in God's image in the book of Genesis. The Logos for Clement plays a powerful role in human life, far more important than merely the incarnation and crucifixion and so on. Also, there's some evidence that he didn't actually believe in uh, orthodox incarnation and crucifixion. Photius, as we shall see in the next episode, said that he was a docetist of some kind. Now, the Logos has always existed and actively teaches mankind. As in Philo and Justin Martyr, the image of sowing seeds is used a lot here. The Logos sows seeds of wisdom in mankind, and Clement uses the Stoic term spermatikos, Logos and spermatikon pneuma interchangeably to describe the Logos. So again, it is the Holy Spirit in some ways. And it is, or he is, the Logos, a kind of presence throughout the whole universe in spiritual form, which sows wisdom and gnosis in those prepared to receive his gifts. Clement also discusses knowledge in humans as a mimesis of the knowledge in the Logos, which is a very Platonist idea. So we have a Stoic idea of seminal Logos alongside a Platonist idea of knowledge as imitation. We alluded earlier to three levels of teaching by the Logos, the first being conversion, the second basic religious instruction, knowledge of the world, and the third instruction about the deeper mysteries, about the higher worlds. We should mention here that Clement sees scripture as also coming from the Logos. It is essentially the Logos in handwritten form. So the scriptural exegete, reading with divine inspiration, is able to get at the unmitigated truth. The Logos also revealed the truth during his incarnation as Jesus, through his example of perfect ethical conduct and theological teaching, but also by imparting secret doctrines to particular chosen disciples after his resurrection. So, the esoteric tradition of the elders within Christianity is doubtless meant to go back to these um, transmissions of knowledge that Jesus gave to certain of his disciples. This theory of divine teaching is used to structure the relationship between Hellenic philosophy and Christianity. So the Stromates is very concerned with philosophy, especially with a lineage Clement constructs from Pythagoras through Plato. These were, in a sense, divinely inspired sages. For although they lacked the written scriptural revelation from the Logos, they, they weren't Christians, they nevertheless had access to the Logos' teaching function, and so could attain to some measure of the truth. But this won't really do for Clement, 
since he blatantly draws on Plato to a huge degree. So he, he sort of has to position Plato as someone who really did know the truth. So he speculates, further arguing most of the time in the Stromates, that the greats of Hellenic philosophy just simply read the books of Moses and plagiarized Moses' philosophy, rebranding it as their own, and in one place, he also considers the suggestion that some inferior divine power, like an angel of some kind, may have actually stolen wisdom from God and given it to humans in the form of philosophy, which God allowed for purposes of his own. So this means you'd have a kind of Prometheus figure drawn from the huge host of lesser deities which populate Clement's universe. He doesn't say whether he agrees with this or not, but he does put it forward as a possibility. Now let's turn to Clement's uh, teeming divine hierarchy now. Speaking of angels, the word hierarchy hasn't yet been coined in the second century. The pseudo-Dionysius will be the one to do that much later, but we are clearly dealing here with a divine emanatory universe with higher grades of being the nearer one approaches to God and correspondingly lower grades the nearer one approaches to the earth. Listeners will be familiar with this kind of cosmology. It is very typical of Platonism and very typical of many esoteric currents in the West. Now, the chain of realities, and here we're drawing especially on the lost hypotyposes, the excerpta e theodoto and the eclogai propheticae, works which are problematic and speculative and may well have been meant for an esoteric elite audience. But we know that this is what Clement believes because we also find these beliefs lurking esoterically within the Stromates. The chain of realities begins with God the Father, of course, who emanates the Logos. The Logos for Clement, as we have seen, is Christ, but is also a hypercosmic reality playing multiple roles in creation and revelation. God himself, the Father, is totally inaccessible and unknowable to us, except through the revelation of the Logos, through Gnosis. On this point, Clement is very Valentinian in his thinking. After the Logos come the seven first created beings, the Protoctists, who are supreme divinities in the universe below the Godhead and his Logos. The Protoctists, metaphysically, are the first manifestation of plurality in reality. Christian Uyer argues that the Protoctists play the role of the Holy Spirit in Clement's schema, um, and there's some truth in that. They have several roles. They eternally contemplate the face of God and this face of God, incidentally, is sometimes for Clement spoken of almost as a quasi-hypostatic entity, as in so much uh, Enochian literature and elsewhere in the apocalyptic Jewish tradition. The protoctists also act as mediators between the lower world and the Logos. They're actually the ones who pass our prayers on to, to Jesus, to the Logos, when we pray. And they act as high priests for the next order of beings below them, who are the archangels. Now, the archangels, in turn, are high priests for the angels below them, and those angels are high priests for the angels below them, and so on, all the way down to the human race. We have angelic high priests above us. And we can mention, going back up the chain for a moment to the top, that the Logos is often called by Clement the Megas Archiereus, the great high priest. And so he stands at the top of this chain of priesthoods. We will return to this universal chain of priesthood in a moment. Now, why there are seven of these first created gods is a mystery, but Clement 
is drawing on loads of Hebrew scriptural works and also New Testamental works like the Apocalypse of John, which have important groups of seven. The Shepherd of Hermas, a, a very important work that we know Clement knew, which is not considered an, a canonical scripture, I think, in any of the Bibles, but is certainly considered a valid source for Christian teaching, talks about the six first created ones, protoistentes, who accompany the Son of God. So there you have seven if you add them all up. Various sources like this. Now, the protoctists are not angels, but they are angelomorphic. They're angel-like beings, which Clement is quite happy to call gods from time to time. It's quite clear that Clement's references to protoctists reflect ancient angelological speculations characteristic of Second Temple Judaism. And while most scholars want to interpret this particular detail of Clement's divine hierarchy as something Clement himself cooked up, it's by no means impossible that the seven first created ones were a teaching of one or more of the unnamed elders from whom he said he had learned so much. In other words, this might be an older tradition. It certainly reminds us of other older traditions, though we don't find anything quite like the seven first created ones before Clement. Now, we have seen that Clement theorizes an emanatory structure of divine beings mediating between human world and the divine world. Each level is the high priest of the level below it. This priesthood metaphor comes from Clement's reading of the Jewish scriptures, and most crucially from his esoteric reading of passages concerning the priestly activities in the tabernacle, which we shall be discussing in some detail in the next episode, because it's pretty mind-blowing. What we should mention now is the fact that as our high priests, the angels above us, are constantly seeking to instruct us and bring us into the paths of the Lord. If we as good Christian Gnostics should successfully achieve this, we shall, when we die, be upgraded to the level of angel. The successful angel priests, in return, will also be upgraded to the next rung of angels above them. Job well done, guys. And so on, up the chain of reality. We have here a beautiful image of all reality, or at least all reality endued with the rational mimesis of the divine logos, on a journey toward God, evolving toward God, a kind of universal theory of evolution toward the highest reality. There is a problem, of course, gentle listener, you may already have thought of it. What happens at the top when the chain reaches the seven and only seven protoctists who surely can't be promoted any higher than they already are? No one has an answer for this one, as far as I can tell, and we'll leave it there as an intriguing question mark. Now, this angelological speculation is truly fascinating. So fascinating, in fact, that we shall devote an entire episode to it. So we'll leave it for now and move on to our final topic for this episode, faith and acquaintance, or pistis and gnosis. Pistis is usually translated as faith, and this will answer, but gnosis is much more difficult to translate. Perhaps rather than seeking out a valid term of translation for gnosis in Clement, we had just as well described some of the ways Clement uses the term. Pistis he defines in the Stromates in a couple of major ways. Its most obvious meaning is the faith of the simple believer who reads something in a holy book and thus believes it to be true without further scrutiny. That is pistis. Um, and Clement actually has some harsh things to say about this kind of faith. But pistis can also mean the belief we have as humans in indemonstrable basic propositions of logic. So this is a usage of the term which is couched in a much more philosophically nuanced discussion of epistemology going right back to 
Aristotle and Plato, for any logical system, any system of inferences, there must come a point at some point where some statement in the system is made which cannot itself be proved. These are the axioms. You always have axioms. But we accept them because we just sort of intuit that they have to be true. For Clement, this acceptance of self-evident truths is an example of pistis. Interesting. Now, what about gnosis? Gnosis in Clement really is a doozy. I don't think Clement has a definition of gnosis as a kind of epistemological function which would have satisfied a philosopher. Or rather, he does have such a definition, but he also then goes on to use the term very loosely to mean something like higher knowledge, which must be hidden from the uninitiated. For the nature of gnosis, he emphasizes again and again throughout the stromates is that it is esoteric in the fullest degree. But let's turn to the philosophical kind of epistemological discussion first. In the first instance, Clement means by gnosis something like what Platonists generally mean by noesis, apprehension of the eternal noetic realities. So far, so good. Incidentally, the story of how this term gnosis came to stand in for noesis in certain traditions of Christianity is an interesting one, and no one seems to know the answer. Why would you substitute the obvious word noesis for this slightly less obvious word gnosis? So gnosis is contemplation of what Clement calls the noetic things. It is sometimes described with the term theoria and thea, both just referring to looking at stuff in their common meaning, but in the context of uh, Platon's philosophy, meaning the contemplation of the eternal verities, the forms, and also called epoptea, the viewing of the sacred images, which was the culmination, of course, of the Eleusinian mysteries. So gnosis of this sort is initiation. It's a kind of seeing, a kind of vision, rather than a kind of thinking, and so on and so forth. This will be very familiar territory to students of middle or late Platonism, but not under the name gnosis, rather under the name noesis. Now, we know there are degrees of gnosis because Clement tells us that perfect gnosis, the kind I've just described, is not attainable before death. We have to do what we can here, but we will never get there. So this is a big difference between someone like Clement and someone like Plotinus. Now, Clement also describes the journey up the angelomorphic hierarchy as one of increasing gnosis, and the protectists, among other things, enjoy perfect gnosis eternally of the Father himself through the Son, the Logos. Now, my guess would be that this is another more mythological way of saying the same thing as we said just now, since greater proximity to the object of noetic perception, in this case the Logos, and perhaps the Father beyond him, would naturally suggest a greater degree of perfection in one's gnosis Basically, the angelomorphic transformations that occur to the Gnostic after death could also be called successive perfections or purifications of Gnosis until Gnosis becomes the perfect Gnosis of the Protoctists. We should point out here, though, that Gnosis is not, or is not only, some kind of non-propositional transcendent mode of knowing, or something like that. It quite clearly is that, but it also quite clearly refers in Clement to things like secret doctrines. We referred earlier to the resurrected Christ's teaching, certain esoteric matters to chosen disciples. This was gnosis that he was teaching them. Similarly, scriptural exegesis 
can lead to gnosis. And this activity of deep reading the scriptures, which Clement took to dizzying levels of ingenuity, as we shall see, is also salvific. In one passage, Clement speculates that if gnosis and salvation could somehow be separated, the Gnostic would not hesitate to choose gnosis over salvation. So this is a very interesting and complex concept in Clement, and it's not possible simply to say gnosis for Clement is this, or gnosis for Clement is that. He means by it a number of different things. And the Gnostic is an interesting character for Clement. On the one hand, after he dies, he will go on to enjoy progressively higher levels of increasingly direct gnosis of the Logos, and maybe even of the highest god himself. This post-mortal eternal contemplation of the noetic realities must surely be read along the lines of transcendental forms of consciousness, right? On the other hand, Clement seems quite modest in his expectations of enjoying this transcendent mode of consciousness in this life, in the bodily life. A human being can enjoy the highest gnosis, but not in the form of a human being. Not even a disembodied human soul. He must first be transformed into one of the gods that surround the Logos and worship the divine face eternally, the first created. As embodied humans, we need divine revelations and secret teachings so as to let us know that the higher realities from which we are cut off exist. This really, really is the dividing line in some ways between philosophical Platonism and Christianity. This unbridgeable gap while we're here in the body. Of course, it's not a hard and fast difference. It's a difference in approach and in emphasis. Anyway, I digress. Perhaps this is the structural continuity, which in fact makes both the higher transcendental contemplation and the earthly secret doctrines both gnosis. The Gnostic down here is simply the possessor of esoteric teachings, perhaps the very sorts of things taught by the mysterious elders of the church whom Clement knew and learned from, perhaps those privy to the esoteric gnosis taught by Christ to the apostles Jacob the Just, John, and Peter. That is really all we have time for in this episode. Just be glad that we took out all the stuff about Clement's complex literary legacy or we would have been here all night. Join us next time when things are going to get much more esoteric as we dive into the stromates and explore Clement's esoteric methodologies, both of reading and of writing, as exemplified in that most esoteric of documents. And in the meantime, imitate the higher teachings of Jesus, which are also the truths of metaphysics and stay esoteric. <laughs>